So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Let me open us with a word of prayer. Jesus, as we come to your word, may you speak clearly and distinctly and powerfully into our hearts. And may we be ready to receive what it is you want to speak to us. Lord, you are our hope and our life. We pray all things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Um, I am a bit of a dreamer, and I like to I like to imagine the future. I like to think about what could be. Um, and, and and here's the thing: uh, <laughs> my dreams are not always very realistic. In fact, uh, probably more often than not, they're not particularly realistic. And I'm going to give you an example, and I'm going to preface this with: I'm being very vulnerable in this. This is very embarrassing. So, yeah, this is. Oh, yeah, anyways, take it or take it for what it, what it is. But when I was in college, you know, I was a philosophy major again, idealist, reading these great books, and uh, and as every you know, as not every, but I guess many college single people imagining one day God blessed me with a wife and kids, what my domestic life would be like. And, and for me, like I've always been a reader, but I, I didn't really begin to love the life of the mind and thinking in that kind of a way until college. And so I was like, well, when I have kids, I want to raise them from the beginning to like love reading and love thinking and love God through their minds. And so I had this, I had this picture in my mind of my domestic bliss and there's this image of me and my, my wife and my children, you know, after dinner, sitting in the living room, the fire, of course, a roaring fire, just reading together in silence for hours <laughs> every night. And maybe Mark and I would take turns, well, I didn't know my wife at the time, maybe my future wife at that time would take turns reading great works of theology for the benefit of our children. Or maybe we'd just have classical music playing softly in the background to develop their musical palette. So this was my, this was my, uh, this was, I'm, I'm not kidding you, I literally had this image in my brain, that was my great expectations for how I would lead my kids to be cultured, metropolitan intellectuals like I wanted to be. And uh, so far, those great expectations have not panned out. Uh, my evenings are, are very chaotic, to say the least. And, 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 and to be honest, it's, it's probably for the better that that didn't pan out. Although I will say my kids aren't teenagers yet. So maybe when they're teenagers, maybe they'll want to sit around and read great works of literature with their, with their dear old dad. But anyways, you know, that, and I'll say this, being a parent is, 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 is wonderful. It's the best thing I've ever done. I, I'd, I'd give everything. Nothing I've done is as great as being a parent. But that specific great expectation has been sadly disappointed so far. Now, that's a very silly expectation. In our text this morning, there was a very serious, God-exalting, Christ-centered expectation that at least initially was very disappointed. 
And what's interesting is that in this, we see how Jesus often operates and that he begins with what are sometimes disappointing beginnings, what is a seed, something small, and from that brings out something beautiful and great and glorious, and it is so that everyone will know where the power is and who the glory belongs to, and that's to Jesus himself. So our first point this morning is great expectations. Second point is disappointing beginnings. Third point is the way of the kingdom. Now, again, a quick recap before we jump into our first point. We've just looked at the Macedonian vision. So right before this, Paul and his missionary team, they're facing closed door after closed door, and they end up in a city called Troas, which is on the, on the coast of what is modern-day Turkey, overlooking the Aegean Sea, overlooking Greece and, and Macedonia. And while he's in Troas, he has this vision of a Macedonian man coming to Paul and saying, please come to us, share the gospel with us. And so Paul shares it with his teammates. They decide this is clearly the leading of the Lord, and they set off on what, is what becomes Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, this Macedonian vision in kind of missionary circles, it's such an iconic story that missionaries will often speak of their own Macedonian vision. Not that they've necessarily had a vision, but this deep sense of calling that God has placed on their heart to a particular people group or a particular uh, uh, geographical area. And so they leave Troas with great expectations. And this is our first point. This is where we pick up in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. So again, what I'm trying to draw is the height of the expectations that this trip begins with. I've never had a vision from the Lord. I don't think the Bible tells us to expect that to be normative in the Christian life. And the reason for that is because we have the scriptures, and not only that, the Bible tells us that like, you individually and you corporately, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of God living in you. And so if you want to know what God thinks, we have his word, we have his spirit, we don't need visions. But when God does give visions, what that means is that that's very notable. Pay attention. We talked last week about how oftentimes we live in this, you know, the way God operates is very strange. We don't understand what he's doing. We try to draw lines from A to B, but discerning God's will is like reading tea leaves. We're like, God, why won't you speak more clearly? And so when he does, like giving you a vision, wouldn't that be wonderful, God? Should I take this job or not? And in the night, you have a vision. Come, come to this job. Wow, that would be wonderful. So clear. Well, Paul's actually got that. A vision from the Lord. And not only that, you've got to think, Paul, I mean, personally, how he would receive that. This is a real question. Does anyone know when Paul's last vision was, last recorded vision? Anyone, anyone? Yes, it was on the road to Damascus. That was kind of a big deal. Saul, the violent Pharisee persecuting the church, encounters Jesus, who, boom, knocks him off his horse. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's Paul's last vision, and that changed his life. And so here he gets another vision from the Lord. I think Paul is expecting big things, great expectations. And the trip so far seems to confirm it. I have a map. Again, I, I like to use maps to kind of show these are real places, but they leave Troas, and it says that they, they stop at a place called Samothrace, which is an island, 
and then they end up in Neapolis, and then they end up actually hike, uh, walking 10 miles inland to Philippi. And it says they did the trip in two days. Now, that's, that's very possible, but what it means is that they had excellent wind the entire way. In fact, in Acts 20, it tells them when they did that journey in reverse, it took them five days. And so again, picture Paul, and they like receive this vision, and then they're like, let's go. And then they have amazing sailing, and the whole time they're like, this is, God's hand is clear. Like, we do this all the time. We're like, oh, God opened this door, and then everything worked out, and it's so clearly God's hand is at work. Again, great expectations. And they arrive at Philippi. Philippi was a wealthy city. It says it was a Roman colony. Don't picture like a frontier town, like a small kind of backward. It, it, it had been colonized a uh, hundred years before this. All that means is that it was a Roman settlement. And so it was basically a microcosm of Rome. They used Roman legisla- legislation. Uh, m- people who lived there were Roman citizens, which will be very important for how the story ends. But it was an affluent, large city, one of the major cities of the area. And here comes uh, Paul and his teammates had this vision. So far, God's opened all the doors wide open. You can imagine the anticipation to enter the city. Jesus, what are you going to do in this city of thousands of people who don't know you? And you've made it so clear that you've brought us here. This is great expectations. And it's, it's interesting, you know, so much of life begins with great expectations, not just the missionary journeys, but, I mean, the becoming a Christian oftentimes begins with great expectations. If you were an adult when you became a Christian, or if you had some kind of recommitment as an adult. There's likely a season in which you just had a deep emotional joy in Jesus. Right? All of a sudden you realize God's real, and Jesus is beautiful, and his forgiveness is complete, and, and, and the freedom is like felt, experienced. And the Bible is just this deep reservoir of treasure you can't get enough of. And you think, well, this is how it starts. I can't even imagine how great it's going to be. Or marriage. When you get married, every husband and wife who stand at the altar have great expectations for their, for their marriage. Again, maybe they've been wondering their whole life, who am I going to marry? What's this person going to be like? And here they finally get to pledge their undying fidelity, grow old with this person, have a best friend. Um, Great expectations. Every husband and wife, even if there's fears that they bring to the altar, has a deep hope of a long and, and, and fulfilling relationship with this person. Or when you graduate, right? Like, if you graduate high school and go work, or if you go to college and then go work, or if you go to grad school, you've been in preparation for 12 years at least, or 16 years, or more if you've been to grad school, preparing for this moment when you can be free, finished your last test, you've written your last paper, and now it's your turn to go out and get a job and leave your mark and change the world and make memories and have a family and all this stuff. Great expectations. That's why, that's why right, every graduation speech is just like so over-the-top sentimental. Blah. But it's like it's an exciting time. It's just like, oh my goodness, you are graduating. Go do great things. But here's the thing with great expectations is sometimes great expectations end up being rather disappointing. And, you know, so again, you become a Christian, and, and, and you think, this is just going to be so wonderful, and then that spiritual high eventually dwindles. <clears throat> and then there are certain sins in your life that you wish you had, you thought you would have made more progress on. And then your church disappoints you, and then Bible and prayer becomes more of a chore. Man, such great expectations, and then this is where I am, just 
so many years later. Or again, marriage. Again, you know, you get married and, and, you, and you realize it did not fix all your problems. And you are literally the exact same person on the other side of the altar. The same anxieties and frustrations and depressions and sins and failures. And for some, they experience in marriage discouragements and frustrations they did not fathom they would experience. Or again, when you graduate and you realize for the rest of your life, never again will your mother or your father make you meals or will you be able to show up at a cafeteria and have a ready-made meal? But you have to make a meal for yourself. You have to, and, and worse than that, you're going to have to go out to a grocery store every week. And miraculously, you buy all this food, and it'll somehow disappear. And the next week, you're going to have to do it again. And it's going to be on the Saturday, the one day off you have, and you're going to have to take two hours every week. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's horrible. Until you die, okay? And you're like, well, this... This isn't as great as I thought it was. Maybe you get that dream job you were thinking about, and then you realize this isn't quite the dream I thought it was. Great expectations. Reality is a little bit less than what you thought. This is what Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and probably some others, this is what they encounter as they come into uh, Macedonia. Again, high expectations. Christ has given them a vision. God's opened all these doors, and they arrive, and this brings us to our second point. So again, first point, great expectations. Second point, disappointing beginnings, verse 13 and 14. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. They arrive, and you, you, I mean, you kind of expect like the Macedonians to be like lining up as they enter the city, like, what must we do to be saved? John Calvin writes this. He says, these holy men left the work that they were doing in Asia Minor, and they quickly crossed the sea as if the whole nation of Macedonia were coming to meet them with the earnest desire for their help. And what actually happened was so different from what they expected that they were almost silenced. Again, I want us to I want us to put ourselves in, in, in Paul and his companion's shoes here. They, they come into the city, and they're like, Jesus, what are you going to do? Like, tingling with anticipation. And then they get there, and they realize no one cares that they exist. And they're just another couple faces in a mass of thousands of nameless faces. And there are a few things that can make you feel more insignificant than being in a mass of people, and no one knows you and no one cares. And in fact, what they find is so probably contrary to what they're expecting that they have to go on a little bit of a scavenger hunt to find anybody who's interested in listening to what they have to say. So it says on Sabbath, on the Sabbath, they go outside the city. Now, a little background here. Remember, Paul's modus operandi, the way he operated, is he would go first to the synagogue because he believed convictionally the gospel was, I mean, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and so the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So he would go to the synagogues, or if there's a Jewish meeting place, he would announce to them, the Messiah has come, give them opportunities to respond, and then he would go to the Gentiles. And there's no synagogue here, there's no Jewish meeting place, and so Paul and his companions think, they make a bet. Well, if there is a meeting place, it'll probably be happening by a river, because they would use water and ceremonial purposes in a Jewish service. 
So they kind of make a, a, you know, a gamble, and the gamble pays off. There is a group meeting there. It's one catch. It's all women. Now, you don't need to have a Masters of Divinity and understand ancient Near East culture to recognize that could be a little bit awkward. For since Caleb was born, I've been a part-time stay-at-home dad, which is not what I planned, but it's been actually really wonderful because I've gotten to spend more time with my kids than certainly my dad did and most dads. And so I've had this experience many, many times where I, you know, Mark was at work, I take my kids, and we go to a playground on a Monday or Tuesday or weekday or whatever, and the playground's packed, and there's me and my kids, and then all moms and their kids. And I'm just telling you, it's just awkward when you're the only dude there. It just is, because you're like, what do I do? Do I go talk to them? Will they think I'm weird? Will they think I'm, like, creeping on them? Like, I just, you just don't know how to handle it. And so typically what I do as well, I'm never going to see them anyway, so I'm not going to go through this effort. I'm just going to stand here and be on my phone. And so then I'm that one lone adult male on a playground full of kids. It's just, it's just very, very strange. This is what Paul finds, right? Big expectations. Finally finds a crowd. And here's Paul, the great theologian, trained by one of the foremost experts in Judaism of the time. He's used to speaking in large groups before rulers of nations, and he finds himself at a women's retreat. I mean, I don't know how this will land. Imagine Al Mohler you know, finding out at a women's retreat. Like, is he the guy you want? Ah! I just, I just feel like this would have been well outside of Paul's wheelhouse, of what he was comfortable with. And because of that, I'm guessing this sermon was not the most powerful sermon he's ever preached. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to get us to understand, I'm just trying to get us to, 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 to enter into Paul's shoes like such high expectations. And the reality is so underwhelming. And, 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 and yes, God's at work, and, 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 and there's this woman, Lydia, and she becomes a Christian, but that's it. No one else is interested. And I wonder, while Paul is preaching this awkward sermon to women who are probably pretty disinterested and don't really care. I wonder if he begins wondering, boy, did I, did I misunderstand this? Thinking over this, like, fruitful ministry he had back in Asia Minor. He had churches planted he could be pastoring and shepherding. Villages that never heard the gospel. And he left all that, and he comes to this place where no one cares. One person becomes a Christian Again, disappointing beginnings. It kind of makes me think of the story of Adoniram Judson. If, if you know him, he was a, a, an American missionary, kind of began the modern, well, he's one of the people who began the modern missionary movement early 1800s. He went to a place called Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar. And like Paul, Adoniram Judson was an unusually gifted human being. Uh, he graduated college, 19, uh, valedictorian, Brilliant. And there's a story I remember um, uh, being told about him. He was one time on a ship, and the ship got taken over by pirates, and so he found himself in a cargo hold. Not sure what was going to happen to him, but he had a lot of time, and he was bored. And so he passed the time by translating his Greek New Testament into Latin. That, I mean, that's just the kind of guy he was. I mean, he could, have pre he could have pastored any number of influential, prestigious churches in America. But he felt called to missions, and so he went, he went to Burma, and after six years of being a missionary there, he had one convert. Six years of, of a remarkably brilliant, gifted man who had an incredible work ethic. I mean, he worked 12, 16 hours a day. 
Six grinding years, one convert. After 10 years, he had 10. 10 years of hard labor, he had a church of 10. It's this segment right here. I imagine Adnan Judson, when he left, imagined after 10 years, he would have more to show for his effort than 10 people. Great expectations. Disappointing beginnings. This is, this is the work at Philippi. It doesn't stay small. We're going to get to that. But I'm just trying to draw it. It begins small. High expectations, and, and, and the reality is so much less than they thought. Why does the Lord do that? You know, most of us probably won't be missionaries in, in this kind of a way. Maybe won't be in ministry. But there's so many other places in our life where God does similar things, where our careers have such high expectations that turn out so disappointing, or our relationships, or our friendships, or our parenting, or our studies. Why does the Lord do that? Well, this is because it's the way of the kingdom. It begins with small beginnings, which Jesus then brings, builds into beautiful things so that everyone will know the power is Jesus's, the glory is Jesus's. And this brings us to our third and final point. So again, great expectations, disappointing beginnings. Third point, the way of the kingdom. And there's a metaphor that Jesus uses that I think is very important for understanding this way of the kingdom. And it's what Jesus talks about in Matthew 13 where he compares the kingdom of God to something, to, to a mustard seed. And a mustard seed is a tiny, tiny seed. It is very, very small. And then it grows into a pretty large plant, eight, ten feet. No one looking at a mustard seed would think that it would become the biggest plant in your garden. And that's Jesus' point. He's like, this is how God works. This is how Jesus operates. He begins with things that are tiny, seem insignificant, and then he builds something so large that the birds of the fields find refuge in its branches. And of course, that refers first to faith. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ... Nothing changes about you externally. You don't get purple skin. The heavens don't part in light. Like, you know, you remember I've touched by an angel? Doesn't happen. No one can tell any difference. And yet you've been so radically transformed by your faith in Jesus Christ that the only thing Jesus can compare it to is being reborn again. Totally different. Small beginning. Radical changes. But it doesn't just apply to salvation. It applies to how God operates in general. And that's what we're seeing in this story. Lydia is the seed. Uh, a, a foreign woman. She's not even from Philippi. you know, uh, and, and she's a woman in a patriarchal society. And yet she becomes a Christian. She's beginning. I mean, remember, Paul's vision is a Macedonian man. And the first person to become a Christian is Lydia. And I imagine that's you know, I don't think Paul was disappointed, but probably not what he was hoping for. Maybe he was hoping for more of like a magistrate or a proconsul like Sergius Paulus and Cyprus. You know, man, if we could get like a, a political leader to become a Christian, that'll really get this thing going in Philippi. But, but it's Lydia. And here's the thing, is that Lydia was exactly the person that Jesus wanted. Because Lydia was not just a woman, she was a businesswoman. So she was a dealer in purple cloths, which doesn't mean much to us. But that means that she was a woman of means. And she had a house in Philippi. And when she becomes a Christian, she invites Paul and his team to not just stay in her house, but to make it the center of operation in that city. And her house becomes the first meeting place of the church in Philippi. Again, from a seed, 
And, and we see this actually the last one, the last, ver- well, the last verse in the chapter, which we'll get to when we get back to this. It's, it says, after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they left. And you can read that and miss it. But what's happening? The brothers and sisters are meeting in Lydia's house. Her house is where the church is meeting. Jesus knew what he was doing. It's one woman in the midst of a women's retreat who's not interested. She becomes a Christian. And she gives a, a launching place for the gospel in Philippi. She's the seed. And this gospel ministry in Philippi, again, it has disappointing beginnings, but it ends up being a very fruitful ministry, a remarkable fruitful ministry for how it begins. And we see this first in, you know, again, that last verse when Paul visits with the brothers and sisters. There are more people who become Christian in Philippi once Lydia becomes a Christian, and there's a place to, there's a, there's a kind of, you know, meeting place, a place to launch the gospel ministry in the city. But second, we get a sense of the fruitfulness of this ministry when you think about the letter to the Philippians. First time you read the New Testament, maybe the second time, whatever, you quickly realize, like, the Philippian church, they were like the golden child. Every letter is like, this church has got issues, right? I mean, Galatians, they're abandoning the gospel. Just two months after they receive it. Can't even persevere two months. Colossians, they're getting into all this weird, esoteric Jewish mysticism. Corinthian church, I can't even say in public what they were doing. And then the Philippian church, they're just like, they're the golden child. I mean, Paul just thanks God for them because they've been partners in the gospel from the first day until then. And in fact, Paul says they were the only church that supported his ministry financially when every other church had dropped him for whatever reason. And they weren't perfect. There was personality conflict we see. But I mean, it's clear, based on the letters alone, the church in Philippi turned out to be one of the most vibrant, spiritually healthy churches in the New Testament, and it all began with a pretty disappointing beginning. The city didn't seem to care. Again, a group of women didn't seem to care, but this one person, Lydia. And if we stopped at verse 14, when Lydia becomes a Christian, we would never guess what Philippi would become. And again, that's why Jesus works like that. That's why he begins with a small seed, with small beginnings, so that there's no doubt it's not because you got this great preacher or you got a great worship team or you got a great strategy. It's, it's Jesus who does it all. And every tongue will confess the power and the glory belongs to him alone. So praise God for great expectations that don't pan out. Praise God because in those moments we have opportunities to learn of Jesus and to learn of his power and to learn of his glory. Because here's the thing. If Jesus didn't begin with mustard seeds, if he began with something great in itself, we would take the credit. And we would never have an opportunity to learn of Jesus. I mean, think about it. uh, I'll give an example. Mark and I had Caleb. Caleb began sleeping through the night at nine weeks. When I say sleeping through the night, I mean we put him down at eight, and he slept till six. That is remarkable. And, uh, and people would ask us, like, how did you do that? And we were like, oh, well, you know. Just got to be consistent, really disciplined, got the food just right. And uh, we thought it was because we had done something right. And then we had Addie, Addie Joy. And she didn't sleep through the night for a year. And that's when we realized, oh, it had nothing to do with us. It was just the grace of God. <laughs> 
uh, that, that Caleb slept through when he did. Likewise, look, if Jesus gave us exemplary, beautiful marriages from day one, you know what we'd do. We'd be like, well, you know, just really disciplined, intentional, you know, which we would take all the credit. Instead, marriage is hard. Sometimes from day one, for others, it's just once that glow wears off. It's hard. And the reason is so that we can, the reason is because the kingdom of God begins with a mustard seed so that we can know where the power is. Marriage is hard so that we can know how incapable we are, utterly incapable of being the husband or wife that Jesus wants us to be on our own strength. It just can't happen. There's no husband in the world who can love his wife as Jesus himself loves you. Consistently. Maybe, I, again, I can crush it on one-time events, but day in and day out, laying down your life for your wife, considering her needs more important than your own, her desires and preferences more important than your own. There's not a man on the planet that can do that. It's contrary to the human heart. Likewise, there's not a woman, a wife on the planet who can submit to her husband as to the Lord. That's too scary. It's too frustrating because we know husbands are. Marriage at times is really hard. And here's the thing. You, know, you don't have to be a Christian to have an okay marriage or even a good marriage. You can manage it on your own. White knuckle it through discipline. But to have a beautiful, deep, Jesus-exalting marriage that smells like the gospel, that is impossible in our own strength. And so it drives us to Jesus, to his strength and his power and his grace, so that as that little seed of our marriage begins to grow into something that really is beautiful and Christ-exalting, when people ask us, how did, how did you do that? We can respond Full sincerity, not an ounce of false piety. It wasn't me. It's the grace of God. Jesus is wonderful, and that's why. Same thing applies to all other aspects of our lives, right? Why is work sometimes so stinking hard? Well, so that we would know the power belongs to Jesus. Why is raising kids sometimes so hard? So you might learn, again, the power belongs to Jesus. Why do we grow old and our bodies fail? So that we would learn to hope in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church in Philippi began with these small beginnings. It began very, very inauspiciously, even disappointingly. But it was so that Paul and his companions and all the Christians in Philippi would know from day one, the power belongs to Jesus his is the kingdom. He is the one who is going to do it all. And, and we're just to be faithful with a little bit that God's given us and give all the praise to Jesus. It's so that we would know that. It's so that we would know that everything we have, everything is by grace. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are one who begins with small seeds. For that is often how my own faith feels. 
but to know that you are one who takes small things and in your power and to your glory, you build it into things that are far beyond what we can imagine. We trust that your kingdom is one that advances in ways that we'll never suspect, that you're at work in ways that we can't foresee and maybe can't even see now. We pray that in our lives, in this church, in our work, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our retirement, in all the places that you've placed us, Jesus, may our lives give testimony to the fact that all that we have is by the grace of God, and all that Jesus has done is because of his glory and because of his power. Pray this in his holy name. Amen.